0: he made clear that God was directing my life. That is the voice of Frida Braus, a nonagenarian who has seen how much the world has changed over the course of a single century. She first read a book of Swedenborg's in her teens and was hooked for life. She knows firsthand the power these ideas have to help the world. Here we are inside, off the left eye. Stick around for my special interview with longtime supporter of the Swedenborg Foundation, Frida Braus, to hear how she found Swedenborg and what it means to her. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose explores the context behind Swedenborg's compositional style. Then, together with Curtis Childs, we travel to 1748, when Swedenborg was undergoing a shift in his understanding of the Trinity this week in history. Welcome, Frida. I am really happy to get to talk to you. And I know you are a supporter of the Swedenborg Foundation. And actually, you are maybe our longest or one of our longest giving donors to the organization, which is something we are so grateful for. So I'd love to hear from you. How did you first learn of Swedenborg? And what drew you to what you learned, even just in the beginning? The beginning
1: of Swedenborg, um, I was 15 years old. And I just happened to see a book in my father's uh, study. And I looked at it and I thought, who can know anything about heaven and hell? And I thought, I have to read this. And I was so confused because I just had finished my confirmation classes and I was more confused than ever. I didn't know why God was three persons. There were so many things I didn't know. So I took the book, I started to read And I read only half an hour every day when I went to school. When I was finished with the book, we went on a bicycle tour to my sister. And my father asked me, did I finish the book? And I said, yes, I did. And he asked if I understood it. And I said, well, yes and no. (laughs) And he said, well, what did you keep from it? And, and then I told him that uh, it was very important that we love the truth and uh, love what is good and do that. And, and he was satisfied with it. And he let me read it, uh, keep reading it. When I finished it, I had all my questions answered. Mm. And it was unbelievable. It was, I mean, it was so wonderful to have actually questions like, God, what is he doing, you know? And everything answered. And it was not... It was 12 years later that I read a different book, and that was Divine Providence. He made clear that God was directing my life, and that everything I knew about him, I found out from Swedenborg, because he said, God was with us, and always with us, and it impressed me so much. So I wanted to read another book that was about divine love and wisdom. This gave me a totally different outlook. It was wonderful. Mm. It was so wonderful.
0: Well, it's really wonderful to hear how you had such a hunger and and thirst for this information since you were so young and you you know you've it's so wonderful that you found this fountain that you could drink from sort of endlessly and that it sustained you you know decade after decade is really wonderful to hear about
1: it was so wonderful and every time it was deeper and more believable and and more knowledgeable. What I heard was that he was actually realizing that he is supposed to tell about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I realized that and also realized that the second coming was not in like person or in a, but that it was coming to the heart of men, and uh, it was wonderful. And I observed continually how this is coming true. Mm. Everything came true what he said, and today we are so far from what was known then, that it is unbelievable. It is really so unbelievable. But then men had to grow up to it. And it was this growing up that was really necessary.
0: Mm.
1: I was so thrilled and so excited when I heard that this was coming true, and this was coming true, and this was coming true. Well, today I am seeing that uh, all through my life, it, it was coming true. If you read him, you know everything. What will happen when you, how you live, how we can use it in our life today. It's reaching many people today which I found a great joy in it. It's in the making now. (laughs) It's happening, yes. Since 1913, I am so happy that his news is going out to people. It's coming near. It's like he is really being known
0: you know, I know that you are now a part of what we call our 1749 legacy society, that you've put the Swedenborg Foundation in your will and and a bequest like that makes, you know, ensures that your support goes beyond even your lifetime to some future, you know, helping the work of the foundation into the future. And I feel like that's so meaningful hearing about your history with it that and the that uh, passion that you have to ensure that more people can be finding out about it more and more to be able to bring bring about the the real heart of what the second coming is
1: yes uh, i think and that is beginning so i uh, can only Hope that more people go to Swedenborg and more people read some of those books and more people learn about him and more people help you.
0: Oh, thank you so much! It's so wonderful to get to hear hear about the the thoughtfulness behind your giving and and I get such a strong sense of how uh, of how much joy it's brought you and then how joyful it can be to support the work to ensure that it continues to go out and reach
1: people and i hope that many people get excited and enjoy him and especially give to the foundation Mm,
0: It's just really humbling and invigorating to hear that from you as somebody who gets to do this work and work at uh, getting the information out there in the most accessible way that it can be, you know, to engage people, to reach people, and connect it to their lives. So it's, and we are hearing always such an amazing, positive response from people who are interfacing with these ideas and having their lives changed, you know, in such a transformational way that it really does give me hope. And it's it's an honor to think that the Swedenborg Foundation can be carrying that on, uh, you know, serving that vision that you have for it and through the the gifts that you've made is is really just very uh, powerful and hopeful, and I'm. I just want to thank you so much.
1: Okay, you're welcome.
0: Thanks again to Frida Brouse for that wonderful interview. As a little check-in on what's going on on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel, last week we explored baptism in our show. Does baptism matter? And that can be watched on the YouTube channel or listened to as a podcast on the Swedenborgian Life podcast channel. And we're continuing our study of ritual tomorrow with a show on how spiritual communion works. So to come along the journey with us, you can tune in 3 p.m. Eastern on Monday for the Swedenborg and Life show, and then Wednesday for News from Heaven and our live Q&A show on Friday. So now at the end of the show, we'll be meeting up with Curtis and Jonathan to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. But first, let's go visit the desk of the NCE. (music) All right. Welcome to the NCE Spotlight, when we shine our light on the discoveries being made in the work of the NCE. Or rather, we could even say we we open ourselves to receive the light that is shining from the discoveries being made in the NCE. What do you think? Welcome, Jonathan.
2: Thank you. That's good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it goes both ways. We share the light. And... Yeah, so what what are some, uh, what what work has been, what discoveries have been being made in the work that you're doing currently?
2: I'm having sort of a sweeping thought this week about how Swedenborg did his work. And um, it's so different than the way that we work these days that it takes some getting used to. One of the main differences is that, as far as we can tell, he just wrote one draft and then the second draft was what he published.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. Which is
2: just hard to fathom. I can't write an email that way. Uh,
0: Yes.
2: How do you go, how do you publish to the world something you can never unsay? your second draft. Yeah. It's amazing. And his first drafts are remarkably good. There's crossing out and so on, but it's not like extensive, complete reworking or revamping. It's he Mm. knows where he's going. And part of what I was reflecting about in connection with this today was that something important to think about is that paper... First of all, everything was done on paper. There's no computers. There's no screens or anything like that. And paper was extremely expensive. So you didn't have the luxury of that picture that comes up in so many movies about writing, where you're throwing pieces of paper in the right. wastebasket, starting <laughs> over again. You, I, you can't do that. It's like uh, writing on $100 bills or something. You, know, you, you, right. you, you don't throw them out. It, it's very precious, <laughs> scarce material. Yeah. And so how Swedenborg would do this, uh, as far as we can tell, is that he would put a lot of thought into it before he started. And sometimes he would just take a little piece of paper and he would draft some headings. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, where is he going? What, what's, what's the main topic? And what would the pieces of this thing be? Hmm. And so that results in a kind of a situation that's um, very unusual for us. There's a number of pieces of evidence that he would write his headings first. Mm-hmm. and he would write his biblical summaries first of, of the inner meaning, the whole inner oh, meaning. He'd just sit sort of down shorthand and say, or something. this is this, yeah. that's that, this is the other thing, that's the other thing. Huh. And so it makes such a different experience for writing, but when you understand how costly paper was, you, you sort of start to understand it more. We know this in part because at the end of Apocalypse Explained, Revelation Explained, Uh, He stops in 19 verse 10, but he gives his whole little summary of chapter 20 before he's even gotten there. You know, so, you know, he's writing his summaries first. In a lot of cases in that work, he writes them separately and then imports them. And you can tell because in one copy, it'll just have a squiggle that's kind of like insert here, you know, he'll just put it in and work along from there. What that results in sometimes is, uh, I want to read you an example. It's not the best example, but it's the best one I could find. True Christianity 698. Uh, off the left eye is talking a lot lately about baptism, and we'll be talking about the Holy Supper. So That's it's right. interesting that this is in the chapter on the Holy Supper and true Christianity.
0: Oh, nice.
2: And Swedenborg writes a heading. See, partly this helps you understand why his headings are whole paragraphs sometimes (laughs) and at least a sentence. Uh, I'll explain that a little more in a bit. Here's his heading. Without knowing about the correspondences of physical things with spiritual things, no one can know the functions and benefits of the Holy Supper. Well, that's a sentence. Yes. Uh, You know? And then what's the first thing he says about it? The assertion in this heading has already been partly explained in the chapter on baptism. Well, you wouldn't have a thing like that. And I know there are other cases out there where sometimes you'll see a big, long, long heading Yes. with all sorts of content in it. And then when he goes to the explanation, he says, I already dealt with this in the previous section.
0: Oh, it's such a good point. I've well, never made never, that connection before, yeah.
2: Yeah, you you, you would, if you understand how he's writing the work, and it's not just that paper was so expensive, but it's actually the way that people in the 18th century thought about these headings was that it's really, the headings are the main thing. To me, they're an afterthought, you know, in what I'm writing.
0: Right, a derivative thing, yeah.
2: But for him, they're really the whole story, And the other stuff is just if you want to read it, go ahead. But if you just read the heading, if you accept that, you can just move on Hmm. because the heading's got the whole story. And so he'll put a table of contents at the back of some of his works. They put tables of contents at the back of books back then. And Mm -hmm. you can see from just reading the table of contents, you kind of get the whole (laughs) gist of what he's saying because they are these sentences and one comes after the other. So think about Swedenborg sitting down to write. If he has an outline with all these headings that are really whole sentences or paragraphs already framed, Mm -hmm. it kind of makes his job easier as a writer because just write about that, you know, say something about that. And sometimes what he has to say is, well, as it turns out, when I was writing about the previous heading, I already already pretty much dealt with that, so I don't need to. And people in the 18th century would probably say, oh, I get that. But now we go, what? You led me in with this great big heading and then you tell me you're not going to talk about it? Uh, What's going on there?
0: Yeah. And so
2: I think that's partly how he would work. I think he would get into one mode where he's really searching deeply about what is the whole flow of this idea. And I think a lot of it is internal in his own mind. And then just write down a sketch of those points. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Sometimes he even writes letters to people and says, here are the points that I'm planning on making. Boom, boom, boom. You know? mm-hmm. And that's enough for somebody. And then his task as a writer is to flesh that out with examples, with cross-references, with analogies and, and scriptural passages and, and what have you. So it's such a different understanding. And, and if you put yourself back in that mindset... And understand, oh, those headings are really g- important. In the NCE, we like to set them in red in the deluxe editions.
0: Nice, yeah.
2: In large font so that you, you know, hear. Uh, listen to this. It's it's not a little throwaway that he added at the end. It's yes. really his whole point of where he's, he's going. And that's guiding him when he's writing. So the writing is almost secondary of the section numbers that come after that heading because he already said what he was planning to say in that heading. So it's helped me in my editing and in my reading and understanding yeah. of Swedenborg to have more of a inkling of how he goes about this and what he's doing. I have to admit that my default setting is that when I see something with headings, I just sort of ignore the headings and get to the main thing. You know, it's uh-huh. like the packaging of a that a that a takeout meal comes in or something. <laughs> well, just the first thing you do is just throw out the packaging, and then get to the meal, and not realizing, oh no, one of the main parts of the meal is that structure, uh, and 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 the rest is a little more. I don't want to put it down, but it's. It, it, it's it's filler, it's demonstration of, of the point that's made in the heading. And if you read the heading and really understood it, you would hardly need the stuff that comes after it.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, it just goes to show this is like so useful to hear this kind of information from you because I had never thought about that even. And and so when people, you know, are picking up, you know, getting a book, getting a, the ebook download or something from Swedenborg.com, one of these, any one of the books, you it can you don't necessarily notice right off the bat that you're reading a 18th century text you know <laughs> and right and not <laughs> most of us don't have sort of a working knowledge of the way you know things were done in the 18th century and so to even just have that is like oh i know what i'm working with it'll i'm sure anybody listening that'll just help give uh you know, make the actual reading of it more accessible because you just actually know, oh, this is how it works. So this is why these ideas are being delivered in this way to me. So oh, it's
2: so fun. These are things when you're going along, when I was translating True Christianity, for example, I would scratch my head over, well, wait, you had that big heading. Then why did you say that or say you already said it? You know, it doesn't make sense to me. And then eventually the light dawns. And and so it's a, a pleasure to be able to share that. With people, if it, you know, if it helps people read and helps their understanding, that's uh, all to the good.
0: Yes, breaking down barriers—it's great. So, thank you so much, Jonathan. And shall we go onward now to see where Swedenborg was and what he thought of God this week in history? Okay. Hey, Jonathan and Curtis. We made it. Hey there. Yes, we are here. And for this week in history, we are dipping into one data point in a long process. So, And this long process of Swedenborg's that he went through is really the ultimate process we all go on, which is getting to know who God is, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, Mm. And so Swedenborg was on this long trajectory. And really, it's one of the most fascinating elements, I think, in that we get access to through Swedenborg's spiritual experiences is getting a sense of how his understanding of God shifted and changed over time. It's
2: very interesting to see uh, there are some scholars who have believed that Swedenborg's understanding did not change over time. which to me is kind of an untenable position. But I see it being more interesting that he started out with a basic kind of Lutheran Trinitarian view. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that there's anything basic about that, but I mean just as a lot of his country people did, and then evolved. He started to use this phrase, unicum dominum, uh, the only Lord, the unique Lord, Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't know exactly what he means by it. He's been using terms like God, Messiah, and also, you know, interchanging that with our Savior and that the that the Lord was the unique human being, unicus homo sometimes. But, oh, um, interesting. And then what we're talking about this week it is the second of two instances in which he started to really lay it out in a way where you can absolutely see it that jesus is in the father in the son in the holy spirit you know that that they're all truly one and this journey continues because late in his works in revelation unveiled which is 1766 in um survey 1769 in true christianity 1771 he has these anecdotes of where angels char- challenge him on his views of the Trinity and say, we're gonna to have to close heaven and leave if you keep thinking of God that way. And he says, no, no, and he defends himself. He says, take a look more closely. This is how I think of it. And they seem to give him a pass. And yet at the end of that experience, mm. he sees his old ideas blow like chaff or like husks mm. away to the north of heaven and and are dissipated. So, that And we don't know exactly when that originally happened, but he's writing about that story late in his life and telling that several times over. Mm. And so it seems like he went on quite a journey of, w- when you're growing up thinking of a trinity with different functions, you know, how does that turn into one God in your head? You know, what happens over time?
0: And so this week, where we are in the middle of March, and... Even he marks this passage, uh, one of the passages we're going to look at as March 14th, but that's in the old style, so it does line up with where we are now, March 21st, um, pretty much. And uh, this moment is sort of setting the seeds for that. And it really makes me wonder, yeah, was it, uh, this was just the first of many where he's sort of slowly getting, you know, shifting his understanding of God over time, uh, but this This seems to be a sort of uh, pivotal moment because, like you said, we've got the unicum dominum just previous to this and then, you know, the whole trajectory of his theological works afterwards. So this is 1748, and like you said, he gets clear or he seems to suggest in his writing that God is one, this oneness in God specifically relating to the Trinity. So he writes this in... Uh, Spiritual Experiences 1368, the Lord commanding that people be baptized, which connects with our Swedenborg and Life show this week, into the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit involves himself, because in him is the Father, in him is the Holy Spirit, because the holy of the angels or of the heavens is his, thus they are one, and Even just in this previous number, he's talking about how receiving the Holy Spirit really means, you know, being a conduit for really what are divine properties, you know, so that they are all really the Lord. So that's why he's saying, it's all just one. It's all the Lord, no matter where Mm. you look. And, And then a week later in the month of March, he remarks on it again of this oneness of the Father and Son. And... Interestingly here, he's contrasting it with spirits that he's observed who actually try to get people to think of the Trinity as like separate persons, but with this specific intent to try to control them. So it's this fascinating, here's these interesting tidbits about it. So um, he's describing it in Spiritual Experiences 1596. He says, this gang, meaning this group of spirits, is terribly wicked, slipping into the spirits' minds, things I am not allowed to write here because of the stumbling blocks they would cause for the masses having little understanding. Uh, is, they that, concern... is that yeah, Journal of
3: Spiritual Experiences?
0: Yes, So that's he, what I mean.
3: Okay, he knew this would probably get out at some point, the, the journal. Oh, yes. Isn't that interesting that he's worried about the masses? Yeah.
0: Oh, good point. Unless that's how so he refers
3: note... to himself. <laughs>
0: like, note to self. <laughs>
3: as his rap name was the masses.
0: Yeah well I do I do think though that he's talking about how these spirits do these wicked things to other spirits. but I think there's a you could make the case that he's in that group too, not the wicked ones, but the people being sort of trying to be controlled by these spirits. so right. So he says uh, they concern the union of the son and his father which they visualize by wicked displays, thus trying to comprehend divine matters by material senses. Because they are of this character, they do this with the intention that when they have led a person or spirit astray, then they claim they belong to them. For when they are distorting someone's faith, they know they are alienating the person from the Lord. So that's like... Mm. Isn't that so powerful? I just was so struck by that idea that how precious someone's faith, uh, somebody's faith being their connection with God, you know, and that if you try to like mess with that, you're really you have the potential to be alienating a person from the Lord. And I feel like we run into that in our through off the left eye and the comments we get from people where people who have had really damaging ideas of God given to them so that they just feel like throwing the whole thing away.
3: It strikes me that it's kind of like food. There's this. There's a whole range of things that you can consume. Cereal is okay to eat. Fruit is okay to eat. Cake you can eat sometimes, but you can't eat rubber. And that makes me think of there's all these different religions. We were just talking about how Swedenborg is finding out that Jesus is the God to all of them. But it sounds like there's certain ideas... That aren't compatible with religion. So there's there's a infinitely possible infinite possibilities of good religious practices, but that doesn't mean any belief system is a good religious practice because it sounds like this idea of multiple gods in the Trinity can be toxic, like self uh, can be self evidently toxic. You know?
0: Yeah. Well, and that's. Mm. I think there's something really to that because he even gets to this, that there's almost a principle behind why it's so toxic, like you say, because, but that's to balance with what Jonathan was saying earlier about how Swedenborg himself later on defends himself to the angels about how it's like, no, 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 no. I think about a Trinity, but it's not really a Trinity of persons. Like I'm really, they're all one in my mind, you know, sort of bridging that gap, uh, But there's this principle at play, which is that um, he says, so these spirits are of this character who, quote, try to grasp the innermost and highest mysteries with their outer understanding. And like, and that's what he even says later is like this problem. That's like what even the angels take issue with. Oh, and it said earlier, trying to comprehend divine matters by material senses or trying to think from an earthly light what you really have to just think about from a spiritual light uh and and so like you're saying like okay you can have any concept of god you know like there's not sort of uh you know whatever whatever your idea of god is can be just right for you but there has to be this sort of like inner spiritual way that you're thinking about it rather than having outer like it seems like the issue is thinking about God from a really external, materialistic way.
2: And I think your theory about this is intriguing because there is some evidence in Swedenborg's drafts from that time period, and even in the published work in Secrets of Heaven, looking back, that he himself fell a number of times into trying to brain his way through this. Oh, He'd yeah. been a scientist and an engineer for so long. And so he would try to just, okay, well, if that, then therefore, and then therefore this, and he'd go into some syllogism or something and like Uh end up in a mess. And so I do wonder whether these spirits were kind of trying to draw him into that mode of thinking. I was interested in that example. I think it's there in that uh, spiritual experiences, 1595 to 1601, where... Part of what these spirits use is just to posit conversations between Jesus and the Father, where, yes. da 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 da, you know, back and forth, so as absolutely two different people, and and that's a again toxic way to to think about it. Apparently, it's
3: probably stuff that Swedenborg was vulnerable to. Isn't there a couple of Simpsons episodes, mm-hmm. or at least one, where somebody's trying to play in mind games with Homer, and it doesn't work because he's so so dumb. (laughs) I feel like there could be that these same spirits try to pull the same thing on me and I'm just, okay, great. But for Swedenborg, because of how he was primed and because of the way he leaned on his rational concepts of God, maybe he was among the the vulnerable to this particular kind of attack.
0: Yes. Mm.
2: And even late in the day in, in true Christianity, he talks about, he has specific descriptions of what he thinks is not the right way to think about it, that you have... God sitting on the throne and then Jesus is at his right hand and then the Holy Spirit is ready to dash off, you know, whenever you need to. And, you know, if you have too kind of concrete or physical a picture of this, which I think is what he's talking about from thinking from kind of the wrong part of your mind. Yeah, right. uh, You end up with absurd um, sort of understanding of this, whereas he talks about the need to think about it from essence to person, you know, think about what divine means and then try to bring that down. Yeah. Well,
0: (laughs) I think he gets there eventually, you know, like I think that's a pretty enlightened perspective, you know, that I think you can find in his works. I think especially like divine love and wisdom, divine providence. And like you said, those other times in true Christianity and stuff where he's uh, really has this sense of, you know, think of, this divine is the underlying divine reality and then these like all of these elements that really give you this sort of like cosmic and pervasive sense of Mm. of god and divinity but in this moment in 1601 spiritual experiences 1601 where i'm i'm gonna read this the last little part to you is like he seems to he's not there yet (laughs) and actually he even kind of it, it sounds almost like he's saying this to himself to strengthen his own conviction like like if you've ever had thoughts that are just like nagging you constantly in your mind you're like you can't really put up a good argument against them but like you're just like well just stop no that just can't be true you know or something like you have to just kind of go for the simplest uh kind of counterattack or something and it seems like he's doing something like that where he says i told them when they wanted to bring in things of their own that it is enough to know what the Lord taught, namely that he is one with the father, John ten thirty, For he who sees the son sees the father, 14, 9, and that the son alone is the door, 7, 10, verse 7, 9, this is all John, is the way, is the means or mediator, the one, etc., etc. He goes on and on um, and he says, and now I am saying that he himself is our father, nor should we think that any is except him because he alone is the mediation. These things are enough, and one should not delve further into these secrets. Like, that's how it ends. So first of all, he's like, totally clear. This is the way it is. And sort of like, I don't have to defend myself anymore against you guys, you know? Like, (laughs) it's enough that I'm just going to take God at his word, you know, in the Bible, and we're going to leave it at that for now, okay? You know, like, that's kind of what it seems like he's saying.
2: And he even gets to the point of... um asserting in true Christianity, again, at the other end of his, his uh, publishing life, that now it's allowable yes. to enter with understanding into the mysteries of faith. because it, and, and then he explains why it wasn't before, and it very much accords with this conversation we're having now.
0: So with what you're saying, Jonathan, what I find so amazing is it really does suggest that there's a way, which I think he gets to it, because he says it's in the new church that uh, it's now permitted to enter with understanding into the mysteries of faith. And part of what the new church is, is sort of this embodiment, this like connection with goodness. You know, like you understand the importance of love, you know, that's it's taken this priority. It's, uh, you know, it's like the second stage of, of, of life, of like regeneration, where that reordering is happening. And it seems like Swedenborg himself goes on this process from feeling, from being like, oh, wait, it's not safe to enter, to try to enter with understanding into the mysteries of faith, you know, early on, because you end up, you know, getting yourself into trouble if you're thinking from it externally. But if you get your priorities straight, you know, like if you start really connecting in with the love as the top thing of all, then, then you're, there's this freedom, this invitation that you can dig into any mystery and you're not going to go astray because, you have that groundedness in love, so that's I really think part amazing. of what he
2: was hoping to do was by communicating some of the kind of it's like an answer sheet or, or or something that you would square other concepts against. yeah, you know, if it matches this, then you're on the right track kind of thing and and once that sort of teaching that body of teaching of genuine truth is available, then. Uh, You're not going to get far wrong. You know, there are a lot of ways to think about it that are correct and and, uh, heavenly.
0: Yes. So way to go, Swedenborg. Way to be putting up the fight and going through the ringer, having your ideas changed. It's fun to get to appreciate this moment in that long trajectory of himself making those shifts in his life. So, yeah, super fun to explore that with you, Jonathan and Curtis. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. All right. Well, I'm Chelsea Odener, and we'll be here with you next week, Inside Off the Left Eye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it to never miss when a new episode comes out. And you know, you're the best audience a podcast could have, so I mean it when I say thank you for listening.